0: Good morning, H2O. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm really excited to be able to worship with all of you this morning. Even in the midst of these circumstances, it's incredible that our God allows us to still gather in this fashion. Uh, and I'm especially excited to be able to preach, with, preach in front of you this morning, uh, since this is an opportunity I get, uh, get a lot, and I really enjoy sermon prepping, as it allows me uh, to just really dive into one specific part of Scripture. And if you've been with us this summer, you'll know that we've been digging into Ez- the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, in a sermon series titled Return and Rebuild. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah are two historical books in the Old Testament that detail the Jewish people after they were taken from cap- into captivity by Babylon and their return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and eventually the walls around Jerusalem. In this week, however, we're not going to be diving too much into Ezra or Nehemiah. We're going to be looking at the prophet of Haggai, which is a short book that in his ministry occurs in the middle of Ezra. And so if you remember for the last week, we left off with the Samaritans pressuring the Jewish, the exiles who were returning to Jerusalem to stop building. They were sent there by Cyrus in 539 with the decree that he issued, allowing them to return and even getting funding from Persia to rebuild the temple. And then upon building the foundation, the Samaritans, they started um, suppressing, they started pressuring the Jewish people that had returned to stop building the temple. And they succeeded. And Ezra 4 leaves off with this verse, and it says, The work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius. And that's where Ezra 4 ends. And then Ezra 5 picks up by introducing Haggai. And if you don't know anything about Haggai, it's a really short book. It's actually only two chapters long. I'd really encourage you after listening to this message today that you go and read it on your own. It won't take too long um, because we won't be able to cover everything that book gets into because even though it's only two chapters, it's a really dense book that covers a lot of God's truths and especially truths that we need today even. So if the Haggai, the Old Testament, a lot of what God is saying through those is so, transcends time and is so relevant to us even today. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into what God is telling us through Haggai. Father, I just thank you for um, this opportunity to get to worship you together. God, I praise you just for uh, the life transformation that you've given people, life transformation that you're still just offering to people. Lord, I I just praise you for... I praise you for your truth. I praise you for your goodness. I praise you that even in these times that we are able to worship you. And I praise you just for a heart of worship this morning, that our hearts can be centered on you. And God, I pray that my words will not be my words this morning, that you would just speak through me, that you would allow your voice to come through me, God. And whatever notes I have, whatever I have prepared, Lord, that if it's not your will, that they not be said. So God, I pray just for um, ears that are ready to listen and hearts that are ready to receive. And Lord, I ultimately pray that your will be done it is in your name. Amen. So what I mentioned the end of Ezra 4 and also the beginning of Ezra 5. What, or what Ezra doesn't explicitly tell you in that time is that there's actually a 16-year gap that occurs between those two verses. So Ezra 4 uh, happens in 536 B.C. And Ezra 5 picks up in 520 in the second year of King Darius' reign. And I think it's really important to point out that this 16-year gap, was not the Jewish people were not building the temple. They had kind of subsided, they were doing their own thing, and it's not because the Samaritans were persecuting them, they weren't pressuring them. In fact, the moment that the Jewish people stopped rebuilding the temple, the Samaritans backed off. They were no longer pressuring them to rebuild it, they were no longer in their faces trying to get them to turn away from God. Like... They just let them do their own thing because they only cared about stopping God doing what God wanted to do. And in Haggai 1, 2 to 4, you see Haggai coming to the people, trying to call them back to him out of the state of essentially choosing not to rebuild the temple. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses, Well this house remains a ruin? Now, the term paneled houses here refers to houses that were likely lined with cedar wood. And cedar wood is something that we see in royalty in this time. Uh, we're going to be looking at a passage from 1 Kings later, later, detailing the first temple, and you see that everything or is laid with cedar wood. It was a sign of royalty. And so, what we see in this passage is that God is saying to his people that you think the time hasn't come to rebuild my temple and that you're living in these houses, these cedar paneled houses, while my house remains a ruin. He's calling them out for their inactivity, for their lethargicness, and ultimately for fearing the world and fearing the persecution over fearing God. And as a result, they chose to worship their own comfort in themselves instead of the God who had called them back to do this mission. And this was really Haggai's first task as a prophet, was to try and arouse the people of God to turn turn them back to him. And this is, if you look at all the other prophets in scripture, this is really a recurring theme. So prophets, we oftentimes associate them with these spectacular visions like we see in Ezekiel, or like incredible prophecies like in Isaiah with the suffering servant speaking about Jesus. But really, the primary role of all the prophets was to call God's people back to him, to lead them to repentance, to lead them to conviction, and then ultimately to correct them in their sin and lead them back to God. And this is the cycle that we see over and over again in the Old Testament. And you kind of, it's kind of a four-step cycle that I pointed out. Um, it's that God does something miraculous to deliver his people. They follow him zealously for a little while, and then the world threatens them, and they cower. And as a result, God punishes them for their disobedience. And I think a perfect example of this cycle is in the story of the Exodus. And so, if you remember, you have the Jews who were trapped in slavery for 400 years to the Egyptians. And it, finally, God begins calling his people out of Egypt. And to do so, he casts 10 plagues on the Egyptians. He brings his people out. He hardens Pharaoh's heart. As they're escaping, Pharaoh sends his armies towards them. And God parts the Red Sea, allows his people to pass, and then collapses it upon the Egyptian army, crushing them. He then leads them to Mount Sinai where he gives them 10 commandments. You see his presence over, over Mount Sinai as Moses goes up in the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And then you see him lead his people through the desert during the day appearing as a cloud and during the night as a pillar of fire, leading his people through the desert towards the promised land that he told them was flowing with milk and honey. And upon getting to the promised land, the Jewish people, rightfully, they send in scouts to try to see what this land is like, what they're up against. And the scouts come back with this report of, um, these people are, they're bigger than us, they're stronger than us, we, we can't beat them. And you just kind of sit there and think, it's like, okay, this, they're choosing to fear a people against a god who just parted the Red Sea, destroyed an army, uh, was appearing to us as a pillar of fire, and it just doesn't seem like they have anything to fear. It's like, if God can part a sea, he can surely allow his people to crush an army, right? And I think it's very easy for us to come to this point of judgment for the Jews, for the Jews here when we do the exact same thing. They mentioned that cycle of um, God doing something miraculous. They follow him and the world threatens them and they cower and then God punishes them. Well, The same thing is true in our lives. I mean, the most miraculous thing God has ever done is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It's like, I couldn't imagine being Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and praying a prayer, knowing that I'm going to die, and still saying, not my will, but your will be done. Like, I don't think that's anything that a mere human could pray in that time, willingly stepping into the grips of death. And then we find ourselves living zealously for him, and then all of a sudden the world just gets in the way. And I've experienced this a lot actually recently, um, especially during this time of COVID-19 and just kind of everything, the world kind of stopping. I'm very much a creature of habit. I love getting up at a certain time to do quiet time. I have meetings for this time. If you look at my Google calendar during like a normal school year, it's always filled out. I have everything listed down so that way, one, I don't forget everything because I'm very forgetful. But two, because I need to have that structure. And COVID has kind of pulled the rug out of all of that. All of that. And I was left with kind of this structureless, just willy-nilly do whatever I feel like at any time um, attitude because I'm like, well, there's no more structure. I don't know how to create this. And so like my quiet time suffered. My prayers suffered. Um, I chose to just kind of fall into this comfortable state of playing video games, playing guitar, um, going for walks instead of actually pursuing God in what rightfully should be the easiest time that I had to pursue God because it was the most time. And it's just it it flabbergasts me that we can judge these people so much and i see this so much in my life is that i follow him i think i'm doing everything just right and then god just reveals me that i'm not he reveals to me that i don't have it all together that i can never fully earn my salvation essentially that i'm just going to keep falling over and over again and yet this is why god sent the prophets this is why god has given his holy spirit to call us back to him now, granted, our form of punishment looks different than the Israelites' form of punishment. Um, and that's because of the new covenant, because of the Holy Spirit. Like, there's there's still consequences, consequences to sin. I think one of them is simply the exposure of it to the community around us. Um, but our conviction looks different because the Holy Spirit, and we have the law written on our heart, where the Holy Spirit convicts us, calls us back to Him, and turns leads us into repentance, which is exactly what the prophets used to do. And it's because that God desires us to grow and learn from our sin like a loving father would. It's like, if God wasn't a loving father, he would simply let people live in their sin. And he would never tell them that their sin is eternally separating them from him. But because he's a loving father, like only a good God would choose to willingly enter into a relationship with uh, inferior people, point out their sin to them because he desires that relationship with them. And I think this speaks so much to God's character, especially as He says that we are the bridegroom of Christ. I mean, I, I envision the idea of not chasing after God with everything I have, similar to if I was married and just neglecting my relationship with my spouse. Of like, we're considered the bridegroom, and Christ is our, um, Christ is our groom. We are like married to Him in a way. And my, by me not pursuing that relationship, it would be like me being married and choosing to do my own thing every night, choosing to just neglect spending time with my wife. And this is oftentimes how we feel that we treat God. And I think this is one of the primary things that Haggai is trying to tell us in these passages is that you cannot let the world get in the way of our worship of God. It's so easy to do so. It's so easy to allow everything else to get in the way of our worship of God, but we can't, simply can't allow that. And I think the, oft, oftentimes the response to that is, well, I have to do better. I have to do more. What else can I do to not allow that to happen? And I, I don't think that has to be the case at all. I don't think that should be the case. And Haggai actually reveals the reason to us in the next section of Scripture. And so in Haggai 1, 12 through 15, um, God says to his people, then Zerubbabel, son of Shetiel, Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai. Because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord, then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people." They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. Now, uh, no one but God could have stirred up the hearts of the entirety of the remnant like we see here. Remember, these are people that for 16 years were worshiping themselves over God. They were living in these cedar-paneled houses while God's temple still laid in a ruin. And in a mere 23 days' time, we see that they go from this lethargic state to living zealously for God. That couldn't have happened without God's intervention. It couldn't have happened without God actively providing them the strength for their present work. And what's interesting here is that we mentioned how the Samaritans were not actually pressuring them during that 16-year gap while they weren't rebuilding. Well, the moment they start rebuilding the temple, we see the Samaritans enter the picture again and try to pressure them once again to stop building the temple. If we go, if you were to go read Ezra 5 through 3, six twelve, it deals with the Samaritans' attempt to prevent the Israelites from restarting construction. Uh, and so these people, they wrote a lengthy letter to King Darius, really challenging whether or not Cyrus ever issued a decree for the Jews to return in the first place. They were hoping that Darius would either ignore the letter, not look in the archives to see if a letter is ever written, or that maybe in the slight chance, the sires actually had never written it, and therefore Persia would actively step in to stop the Jews from rebuilding the temple. Darius does us that, though. He goes back, looks at the archives, and if we look at Ezra 6, we see that Darius then issues his own decree. Uh, and so in Ezra 6, 8-10, through 10, Darius says this, Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of, the, out of the royal treasury from the revenues of the trans-Euphrates, so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lamps for burnt offerings to the God of heaven and wheat, salt, wine, and olive oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem, must be given, must be given to them daily without fail." so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. This is not the result the Samaritans are hoping for. This is Darius writing to the Samaritans, telling them, you know what, actually there was a letter that Cyrus wrote. There was a decree given. They're meant to be here. And you're not just going to sit around and watch them. You're actually going to help them. You're going to provide Uh, you're going to provide them with sacrifices. You're going to provide them with money needed to build this temple. And so really Darius doubles down on Cyrus's decree and enforces it and allows the Jews to continue building the temple in this prosperous state. And I don't think this is because Darius in himself chose to do this. I think this is primarily because God used Darius to preserve his people because God was looking over his people, watching over his people and was guiding them the entire way. And I also believe that if the Jews had actually listened to God 16 years prior, when the persecution, when the pressuring first started, I think the same thing would have happened. It's like God looks after his people. He preserves his people. And we see that the result of us not listening to that isn't God's plan not coming to fruition. It's simply that we experience a less fruitful, a less glorifying relationship with him, almost this fractured relationship in a way, because we're not actively seeking after him and trusting that what he says he'll do, he'll actually do. And it leads us to this conclusion that we can do absolutely nothing without God. And if there's one man that I know of that lived this way, um, it's actually John Draghi. Um, Some of you might not know who John Draghi is. He was a pastor in the Collegiate Church Network um, at a church called The Rock in Missouri. And he last March, he was diagnosed with a form of cancer called glioblastoma, which is the most aggressive form of cancer known. And they offered him chemo and pretty much gave him this much time to live. And, as, and in turn, John, his wife Amy, Amy, and their kids created a website called JohnDraggy.com, where they updated people on, on the chemo. They encouraged people. They updated people on his process and used it as a platform to really share the gospel. And in it, they uploaded these videos. And in one of the videos, shortly after he was diagnosed, John said this: "I am a father, a husband, a pastor. On March 20th of 2019, I was diagnosed with glioblastoma." My future with my job is going to be very different. My future with my kids is going to be very different. Even though my future with living or dying is very uncertain, we have a good God who loves us very much. And even though we don't know the plan, He has a plan. And even though we can't always feel the strength, He gives the strength. And here's a man who was just diagnosed with a form of brain cancer where they just give you a time to live. Like, it it will kill you. There is almost no stopping it. And... Instead of looking towards that, instead of feeling down about himself, he points everyone back to the gospel. He, reminds, he tells us that this is a battle I cannot win on my own strength. This is a battle that I need God for. And he, I think he's referring to not only cancer, but the greater battle of picture here, the spiritual battle that, he, battle that he was suffering as a result, was a battle that he was completely powerless to win on his own. He understood that, he was, that no matter how hard he tried, that he couldn't do it, that he had to rely on God. And ultimately, he refused to allow the, the world to get in the way of his worship. And he knew that he could never do it in his own strength. He needed God to preserve him, just as the Israelites and Haggai needed God to preserve them from these persecutors, from the Samaritans trying to stop them. Towards the end of his life, um, John passed away last week. And there's a video of him towards the end of his life. And he keeps repeating this quote by Jim Elliot, which says, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And John knew he could not keep this life, whether it was five days from his diagnosis, a year, 10 years, 20 years. He knew this life was something he could not ultimately keep. But he also knew that he could not lose something in the future. And what he could not lose is that the future glory that was promised him by Christ is so much greater than anything he could have chosen to live for in this life, including life itself. And this is exactly the same promise that we see Haggai telling his people as we continue this story. So in Haggai 2 1 through 5, God says, On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josadok, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. Be strong, all ye people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So here we see God repeating the words, be strong three times to encourage his people. He reminds them of the promise, the covenant he made with them, a promise, bringing them out of the land of Egypt at Mount Sinai. And he ends it with, do not fear. And in order to understand why God is fully encouraging his people here with this, we have to back up 16 years right after the construction of the foundation. And so in Ezra 3, right after the, temples, the foundation of the temple was constructed, you had the young Israelites, who had never seen the glory of the first temple, have shouts of joy. They were shouting up, they were praising God for the work that he was doing, praising God for the rebuilding of the temple, for sending them back there. And the older generation, the ones who had physically been taken into exile, who had seen the glory of the first temple, wept. And in Ezra 3, this verse sticks out of, No one could distinguish the sounds of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping. And you have to ask yourself the question of why? Like, what was so great about the first temple that these people wept upon seeing the beginning of the construction of the second? Um, I'm just going to paint this picture. I'm going to read as a rather lengthy passage from 1 Kings 6. It's not going to be up on the screen because I want you guys to just listen and try to picture the extravagance that Solomon put into this temple, and even close your eyes if you want to as I read this. So this is 1 Kings 6, starting in verse 14. So Solomon built the temple and completed it. He lined its interior walls with with cedar boards, paneling them from the floor of the temple to the ceiling, and covered the floor of the temple with planks of juniper. He partitioned off 20 cubits at the rear of the temple with cedar boards, from floor to ceiling to to form within the temple an inner sanctuary. The most holy place. The main hall in front of this room was 40 cubits long. The inside of the temple was cedar, too, carved with gourds and open flowers. Everything was cedar. No stone was to be seen. He prepared the inner sanctuary within the temple. to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 wide, and 20 high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold, and he also overlaid the altar of cedar. Solomon covered the inside of the temple with pure gold and he extended gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary which was overlaid with gold. He overlaid the whole interior with gold. He also overlaid with gold the altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary. For the inner sanctuary he made a pair of cherubim out of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. He placed the cherubim inside the innermost room of the temple with their wings spread out. The wing of one cherub touched the wall while the wing of the other touched the wall. A touch the other wall, and their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. He overlaid the cherubim with gold. On the walls around the temple, in both the inner and outer rooms, he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He also carved the floors of both the inner and outer rooms of the temple with gold. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors out of olive wood that were one-fifth the width of the sanctuary. And on the two olive wood doors, he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and overlaid the cherubim and palm trees with hammered gold. In the same way, for the entrance to the main hall, he made door frames out of olive wood that were one-fourth of the width of the hall. He also made two doors out of juniper wood, each having two leaves turned in sockets. He carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers on them, and overlaid them with gold hammered evenly over the carvings. I, I wish I could have seen this temple in his day. This was a marvelous work of art that Solomon had created. And what isn't mentioned here is the 200,000 workers that Solomon had building this temple compared to the 50,000 that the exiles had upon trying to rebuild the second temple. It is so clear that Solomon spared no expense in building this. And even as God says in that passage of Haggai we just read, compared to the first temple, the second one seems like nothing. And when I picture this, um, I've been to Paris a couple times before Notre Dame burned, basically. And I I imagine Notre Dame compared to like some backwoods church that we'd find in Georgia or whatnot. And like you walk into Notre Dame and there's stained glass all around the exterior depicting the life of Jesus throughout the Gospels. It's like you see these glorious high art ceilings, this marvelous um, organ piano, and it's just a sight to be seen. And then everything else just kind of seems mundane after that. It's like if the same workers who built Notre Dame would have come build like an evangelical church in the United States, it wouldn't be the same. Like they, they would look at it and be like, this is not nearly to the extravagance that the first one was. And what God says next completely flips the idea of what makes something glorious on its head. So in Haggai 2, 6 and 9, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace. What, what we see God saying here is that the glory of this present house, the glory of the second temple or this little Baptist church in Georgia is going to be greater than the first temple, than the temple we read about in First Kings uh, a couple of minutes ago. The te- it's going to be greater than Notre Dame. It's like, in our brains, it should be flipped. It's like, obviously, the first temple, obviously, Notre Dame is more glorious than this second temple that we're building, more glorious than these other churches, and yet... What God says is what makes something holy. Is not the expensiveness or the grandeur of the like exterior, but what fills it. And so, what fills the second temple that will make it more glorifying than the first? Well, if you scroll, if you go to the last verse in Haggai, Haggai 2:23, God answers this. He says, "On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shetiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you," declares the Lord Almighty. Now, a signet ring was a token of royal authority, similar to a crown uh, or, or a scepter, as you see in Genesis. And Zerubbabel is actually directly descended from Judah and is the last person to be mentioned in the blood lineage of Jesus um, that you find in Luke, but also the legal lineage of Jesus that you find in Matthew. And so it's, this is saying that Zerubbabel, who is descended from Judah, who the Messiah will come through, like, you are being restored, I will make you like my signet ring. It's this place of royal authority that God is giving him. And if you look at Jesus' life, we see early on in his ministry that he enters into the second temple. He cleanses it. He flips tables in the second temple. And he physically enters his presence. We saw that the Ark of the Covenant may have been in the first, which God's presence certainly dwelt there. That was the center of it. But God physically walks the halls of the second temple. And so, no matter the grandeur, no matter the extravagance of the second temple, it would be more glorifying because God himself would walk the halls of it. And this is the promise that Haggai is making to his people here. And if what makes something valuable is what fills it and not what appears on the outside, then then what does that tell us about God choosing to make us his temple then? It's like, how much does he value us if he chooses to go from this extravagant building that Solomon built to house his spirit, to house his presence, to us? It's like, this speaks so vastly to how much God cares for us that the entire scripture is built around our redemption, him redeeming us, him bringing us back to him, and us having absolutely nothing to do with it. And this is like God loves us more than we can ever fathom. I think this is one of the key principles that Haggai is pointing us towards is God's love for his people, his love to want to bring them back to him. It's not because he has to. God could choose not to and still be good. But God desires that relationship with us and chooses to draw us back to him. And so we see Haggai this entire time pointing us towards the coming kingdom of God with eager anticipation. He's reminding the people that, hey, what you see now this, isn't begin- this is not the end. This is merely beginning. God's glory is so much greater than you can even fathom. And he is pointing them towards the Messiah. So the one who can touch the sick that are filed and heal them, he's pointing them towards the one who can say to the lame walk and the dead rise. And even greater than that, Haggai is pointing them towards the day that Jesus will come back and ultimately have the ultimate victory. Um, If you want to see more about what happens there, we just finished up a series in Revelation that you can go back and look at and see how glorious it will be when God's kingdom is completely brought back to its fullness. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. That was true for them back then. But for us, it's different. Because the glory of our future house will be greater than the glory of this, of this present house. The state that we're in right now, even though it's more glorifying than the second temple when Jesus walked through it, it's more glorifying than the first temple with the Ark of the Covenant. We have the Holy Spirit in us. It's more glorifying. It's nothing compared to the glory that God is eventually going to bring down with the new heaven and the new earth. Um, as many of you know, we recently suffered a loss of like somebody very close and dear to us in the HO community, John Duff. And He was I only knew him for about a year really closely, and he quickly became one of my best friends over that year. Um, And I personally took his death really hard because I was blaming myself for a lot of it. Um, John and I would talk a lot. We confided in one another. He'd come to me with struggles. And I just kept blaming myself, like, oh, I should have reached out sooner. I should have called him, should have texted him. And um, just to kind of get closure... And to kind of get, well, I can think a couple of reasons. To get closer to pay respects to his family, and to just see, like, say goodbye to John. Um, There's about 20 of us from H2O Cincy that made the nine-hour drive to Georgia for his services. Um, and after the services, his family invited us back to uh, his, John's grandma's house to feed, us, to feed us this incredible southern home-cooked meal. Um, just really congregate, to share memories, and just enjoy one another's company. And I remember as we were getting ready to leave, I was talking to his mom, Janet, and his mom, there's only a couple of us in this little circle. And she just kind of singled me out, put her hand on my shoulder and told me, do not allow this to get in the way of your faith. Our God is good and his plan is good. I had nothing to say. Like Here's a woman who, in all respects, should be the one that everyone else is encouraging, should be weeping on her knees, should be struggling, should be questioning everything. And yet, this is a woman who the entire service, through the entire afternoon of dinner at her house, or lunch at her house, was encouraging people, reminding them of the goodness of our God, reminding them of the faith that God had given us, and telling them that this isn't the end. And I, I had nothing to say back. What could I? It's like... This should have been flipped. I should have been the one encouraging her, but instead the woman who just suffered the loss of her son was encouraging everyone else around her. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Janet knew this life was something that was not worth holding on to, that there was something much more that she could not lose, that John could not lose. And through all of her pain, through all of her suffering, knew that this life was not worth chasing after more than God. And she lives to make other people know that truth as well. And so as we just go from here this morning, as we head back into a time of worship, let us be a people who live in light of these truths that Haggai gives us, a people who seek after God over our own comforts, who don't allow this time of no structure, who don't allow this period that we're in right now to get in the way of our worship of God. Let us be a people who actively seek after Him, a people who understand how helpless we are to defeat our enemies in our own strength, who see this need that we have to rely on God, that we can do nothing on our own own, and who trust God to redeem us, to wash away our iniquities, and to preserve us with His strength. And lastly, let us be a people who, like John Draghi did and Janet Duffield does, live knowing that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the coming glory of God's eternal kingdom. Let's pray. God, I, I thank you for these truths. I thank you for these people that we can just look at and see how you're working in their lives so actively. And God, I praise you for your salvation. God, I praise you for just using the prophet Haggai to not only speak to the people then, but to speak to us, to remind us of your truths, to remind us that you are good, that you are looking after your people, that you have a plan, and that you love us so deeply, that you promised us a Messiah who would die on the cross for us. And take the punishment that we so rightfully deserved. So God, I just, I pray that we can leave... Here today, um, just in a more worshipful state, and we leave here today with our hearts pointed towards You, with a zeal to seek after You, Lord, and with a zeal that will not be fa- that will not be phased by the by this world, Lord. That no matter what happens in this world, no matter what we are going through, that we can look towards You and see Your glory above all else. Amen.